Perhaps ironically, this episode actually has a topic which would, under normal circumstances, be extremely controversial, but doesn't really discuss or analyze it, so I don't really have to bring down the controversy box this week, so that's nice. <laughs> What's funny, though, is this episode is actually very significant for two very big reasons. Odo and Win. Adama Win or Win Adama. I can never... I always call her Kai Win because, well, of course I do. <laughs> The first initial storyline idea here was that Burial was actually going to become the new Kai. And I don't mean that in the sense that it was in the first draft. I mean, they had that planned since Burial first showed up. In fact, some people have argued, although there is no evidence of this, that this has been the plan since Opaka was removed from the equation way back in Season 1. I don't know how true that is, but it makes sense to me. <clears throat> It's especially true since they would actually later on do what is functionally the same concept with another character, Commodore Ross. The idea is there's the obstinate bureaucrat type character, right? I've talked about this so many times, and it comes up all the time in Star Trek. It was one of the most common types of roles back in the original series and through a decent chunk of TNG. And it still kind of continues in a lot of other Star Trek. You know, you've got that person who's an admiral, or a religious leader, or a political leader, or a diplomatic leader, or whatever. Someone who is in charge, who is basically against the good guys. Admiral Nechev is probably the worst example of that overall, because Kai Wynn, while she technically qualifies as this type of character, uh, is mostly just pure evil. But I digress. The point being, I mention this because... The writers had this plan, and then they sat down to write this episode, and they're like, wait a minute, no, we need drama. We need someone who's against the heroes in charge. For once, I don't agree. In this specific case, obviously I don't want everything to go swimmingly for the characters, but again, as I mentioned, we know the value of a person who's in charge who's actually on the side of the heroes. Usually you have like one, maybe two characters like that, and they're there when you need that kind of support, when you need that kind of backing. Um, when you need someone who can actually accomplish the things that you can't because you don't have the authority to or whatever. Uh, I brought this up back during the, the Circle trilogy, actually. That came up back then. So, here, <laughs> we could have had that. Barahil could have been a powerful ally, someone who could have actually been basically the only sane voice on Bajor, a world who, I remind you, at this point has already gone through a lot of crap, including a small civil war, and doesn't really have anyone who's on our side, functionally speaking, unless you're counting Kira, and even that's kind of debatable. But no, we decided to go with the typical thing, and that's that's why I kind of look at this like, really? Now, again, I'm not trying to be a hipster. I know that there's nothing wrong with doing the typical thing so long as you do it well. But in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, and I admit this is with the advantage of hindsight as well, I think Wynn would have been better as a villain who wasn't in charge of the religion of the, the good guys factor, if she wasn't the Kai. I think she could have been a very effective and very powerful villain, despite that fact. That's just my opinion. It, it, it especially is true because, you know, one of the biggest points of her entire character arc in every appearance she's had to date has been her rise to power. Well, now she's there... And if I could just be completely blunt, they don't really do anything that good with Wynn after this point in time. Now, I might be mis uh, misremembering or forgetting a certain instance, so please forgive me. But most of what I'm remembering is over in Season 7, 
which I'm not going to spoil. But, I mean, Season 7 has a lot of other problems, so whatever. I also have to admit, um, there's one other line in here that's... It's not even a line, actually. It's There's one other thing that was thrown in, which I find amusing, because it wasn't part of the script. I don't know who decided to do it this way. I have a theory. Let me explain what I'm talking about. There's a scene in this episode where Odo reacts unusually when Kira admits that she's in love with Burial. <clears throat> now, with the advantage of hindsight, we can all look at that and be like, aha, that's just obvious, right? That was not written that way. The author of this episode, Mr. Holland, flat out says that he never designed that line to be written in that manner, and it's not in the script. So someone invented that little reaction after production, or after, after pre-production, so during production, in order to make Odo have that little reaction. Based on evidence, I would point most strongly to Cliff Bull for that. Now, Cliff Bull is actually a fairly excellent director. He's really good at um, magnifying events through the lens of characters. I think that's probably the best way I could display in his directing style. I know that sounds weird, but it's basically like a, a mix of keeping everything in perspective while still having the focus be on the characters, while still acknowledging the events going around him. So it's kind of a mixture of plot and character directing. He's pretty good at that sort of thing. If you're wondering who Cliff Bull is, among many other episodes, he directed The Best of Both Worlds, so that's probably all I need to say on the matter. <clears throat> I think he tossed this in, probably René Bergenois as well, but at the same time, given later facts, maybe not. So again, all my evidence, I have no evidence, my only theory on this is that it's Bull, that he was like, just stutter a little bit when she says that. Just have a little bit of a reaction and then move on to the next line, and René Bergenois is like, okay. I'll talk more about that later. What I want to talk about right now is religion, because there's nothing more that I love in talking about a Star Trek show than discussing one of the most hot-button topics in human history. No, it's okay. It's okay, guys. We're talking about a fictional religion, the Bajoran religion. The Bajoran religion's always been kind of fascinating to me, because it's not structured like most human religions are, really. Like, you kind of have this pseudo-Catholic thing going on. They've got a, basically a Senate, a Holy See, really, going on. Um, there are elected positions. There are ranks and tiers. And higher ranks have access to more things and have more power than the people below them. And there are certain duties and obligations that they have. There is the implication, although I don't think this is ever stated outright, that access to the orb is also limited based on rank. So that's another benefit of crawling up the ranks. So they basically have a fully-fledged uh, hierarchical political infrastructure. So in that sense, it's exactly like every other... I'm sorry, I, I swore I wouldn't get into controversy. But it is a fairly stereotypical religion, especially in a fictional sense, in that it is a political entity. Except there's the weird fact that it still manages to maintain a fairly strong spiritual current, helped by the fact that there is practical and indeed provable interaction with their deities. The, the prophets. They know the prophets are there. We, the character, the audience, have actually seen the prophets and seen interactions with them, and will in the future. And the orbs are real things, which give real visions. So, <laughs> you can kind of see how this kind of shifts a little bit from, from most uh, standard fictional religions, especially given the fact that they don't seem to have any particular 
dogma. Now, I shouldn't say dogma. That's probably the wrong word. And I'm, I, I will completely admit I'm not up to my uh, religious terminology, so please forgive me. Because I actually mean no offense to any real-life uh, people who are spiritual or anything like that. But what I mean by that is, near as I can tell, there's no, like, this is the core thing we venerate. Like, most religions that I've analyzed, most of which are fictional, um, usually have, like, one core precept. And this core precept informs the rest of the organization, right? You know, all, all glory to Saint Eva. Everyone, bonus points if you know what I'm talking about. All, all prayer and veneration must go to Saint Eva is the core aspect of the Church of Saint Eva. Ergo, everything else that they do is all about getting more followers, getting more people to pray, and getting more people to venerate Saint Eva, because there's a practical reason why they're doing that. Spoiler alert, they're incredibly evil. Anyways, <clears throat> so I mentioned that, because other than the prophets, like, I don't, I don't know what the Bajoran core belief is. I would argue, and I admit that this is a debatable, that there is no core belief to the Bajoran religion. If, if there was something to be said as a core belief, it would be, we can endure. Because, this is just my opinion, the main reason the Bajoran religion, the prophet's religion, whatever you want to call it, re- prophetism, let's call it prophetism, uh, got so widespread is because of the occupation. Now, that can be debated since the prophets, you know, time, blah, 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 going into the past before the occupation, etc. But from what we know of Bajoran history, the prophetism didn't really become big until the occupation. Now, that makes sense. There's some bigger, better beings out there who care about us and, and want you know, what's best for us. And they are something to hold on to, basically. They're a boat. <laughs> credit if you get that reference. They're a boat, you know, it's just, ah, I just gotta get to this boat, and it gives you something to cling to when you're going something so horrifically atrocious as the occupation. That makes sense. But then the occupation ended, and everyone's like, alright, prophets! Like, this isn't exactly a bad episode, I'd, I'd call it like below average if I'm being honest, but the one thing that irritated me about this episode is how often people said the word prophets. I should have counted. I should have had counter writers right here. It's on my desk. I should have had it just been like, prophets, prophets, prophets. Because good Lord, here, prophets. I'll give you the sound effect. Prophets, prophets. Because, oh my God. Because that seems to be all the Bajoran religion really is. The closest thing we get to an insight on the Bajoran religion, in my opinion, is actually in this episode. Although this is mentioned before as well. Interpretation. There's these sacred scripts and sacred texts, and everybody interprets them in different ways. Now, that makes sense. Everybody's going to look at you know, a Rorschach blot and see something different, right? But more to the point, certain people are going to say they interpret it in a certain way because they have an agenda. Either a personal agenda of bias or belief, a political agenda of desire or conquest, or a... Let's call it a cooperative agenda, where they're, do, where they're saying such and such because it will benefit someone else, either because they get something out of it or because they care about that other person. So it makes sense to me that there's these interpretations of the scriptures, so to speak. That's logical. But that's all we got. And forgive me for talking so much about this, but this is just... There was a lot of scenes in this episode where I had nothing to say, and my mind just kept processing this whole concept of the Bajoran religion as we're, you know, for, for prophetism. And... I find the whole concept fascinating, but ultimately just a tease. I, I, I know this sounds strange, but I wish they went more into this religion on Star Trek. I, I know that sounds so odd. 
but from a purely fictional cultural setting building perspective, I think they could have done more with it. I understand why they didn't. I mean, that's the kind of thing that would be kind of uneasy to do now, never mind back in the 90s. But nevertheless, let's move on. So then uh, Wynn, I'm just going to start calling her Kai Wynn. Is everyone cool with that? So Kai Wynn shows up, and I just want to punch her in in her stupid Nazi face. Now, again, none of that is hatred towards the actress. In fact, if anything, the actress is really, really good at playing someone this horrible. I've actually given her praise for this in the past. But holy God, she plays it so well. Quick side note. I, I once did a role-play series of Fallout 3 uh, where I play the character in character and every episode is done fully in character. You know, so there's no... You know, it's, it's a different type of a, of a long play kind of a thing, basically. Several, several... It was so unpopular I had to cancel the entire role-play series. The reason most people gave for giving up on the series and for not watching it is because I was apparently doing a really good job of portraying a despicable human being, which I'm not sure what to make of. That was the intent. It's worth noting. The whole point was that Matthew, the character I was playing, uh, started off just as a as horrible, horrible, despicable brat of a human being and would try to drag himself out of that to something slightly better over the course of the game. Uh, basically being punched in the face over and over by reality was the whole point of the arc. But my point is, bringing this back to Win, when someone accurately portrays someone so horrible, you can kind of understand why it's like, ah, oh, God, right? I can't quite say that Kai Win is a get-off-my-screen character, but she is probably the borderline of that. For those of you who never heard me talk about this, uh, I've said many, many times that there's a difference between a character you hate and a character you hate. Because a character you hate, it's like, oh, God, I hate him so much, yeah. And you can't wait to see that character, him, her, it, or whatever, on screen more, right? And then there's a character you hate, where every time it comes up, your enjoyment of the work re is reduced. Where you actively start disliking episodes or games or sections or chapters or whatever when this character is on screen. On screen, quote-unquote. Thus, I, I try to differentiate these two character types between a character you hate and a character you just want off the screen. Makes sense. So Kaiwin is like right on the edge of that for me because, god damn her. <laughs> She's so damn smarmy. I call her the worst kind of politician. Many times when discussing fictional works, I talk about the two types of politicians. Uh, there's a type of politician who's really good at being obfuscating and... Well, let me re rewind a bit. Because usually what I say is I say this person's a good, good politician or this one's a good, bad politician. A bad politician is someone who is interested in themselves, who is selfish and wrong and evil. Let's just, let's just say it as bluntly as we can. And is someone who really only is playing the game or, and manipulating things and saying the right things in order to add to their own situation. They're usually the bad guys, if not directly, then indirectly. Then there's a good, good politician, which is someone who actually knows how to use politics properly and actually knows how to maneuver and work through a system in order to try and better the system or the people or the good guys or the situation or the country or whatever, right? Uh, um, to, I guess I should give examples here really quick. An example of the former would be that corporate idiot back in Aliens, Aliens 2. I can't remember his name, but he's the guy who's Wayland yutanis representative. An example of the latter would be Vane Solidor from Final Fantasy XII. Getting on. Moving on. Moving on. So Kai Wynn, he's she's, she's kind of a third type of politician I don't talk about that much. She's the obvious politician. 
An obvious politician, and, and at this point I'm, I'm kind of stretching the definition of the word politician. An obvious politician is someone who walks up to you and says, Hi, uh, let me try this. This is actually difficult for me to do, so give me a second here. Um, I know what I'll do. I would never think to say anything bad about black licorice, because black licorice is so delicious. I enjoy it at every chance. Oh, well, would you eat some right now in front of us? No, I'm afraid that doing so would not be proper decorum. Instead, I'm afraid that I will have to eat it in the privacy of my own domicile. Thank you. Right, that's an obvious politician. They're basically bad at everything. Everything they say is this spewing lie. It's an obvious lie, and it's so obvious no one's even supposed to really be deceived by it. Usually, bad politicians, this third category, are either sufficiently self-deluded that they really think they're actually deceiving everyone, or they are protected by some other mechanism, usually a social or political system, which makes it so they don't have to try. They can just overtly lie, and who cares about the consequences? Personally, I think Kai Wynn belongs in the latter category, but that is my opinion. So she does this constantly in this episode. That's why I'm talking about this so much. Because every scene she's in, every single scene she's in, she just spews these kind of obvious lies and really, really direct, blatant, stupid manipulations. I liked her one scene with Cisco where she tries to manipulate Cisco in the direction of getting her passive support for her cause. Cisco who, of course, is actually a good manipulator, as has been demonstrated already multiple times by this point in the show, completely smoothly and effortlessly maneuvers around her and says, yeah, I'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs> I mean, he does it better than that, but he just completely outplays her. What I love about this is, in the end, she actually says, oh, and tell Cisco, I'm afraid I have to cancel. I'm just too busy. <sighs> Anyways... So, I'm going to skip the Cuba stuff for a second. So, I, I do want to mention one thing, continuing our theme of Kai Wen here. Cubus reaches out to Win specifically, in order to try and barter his way down to the planet. Now, that makes perfect sense to me, because Wynn is not young. And I don't mean that as an insult. What I mean is that she has been a religious figure during the occupation. And I have always had the very strong impression that she was also a hell of a bad politician. You know, still, though she was still playing political games even during the occupation. And someone who was the head secretary of in, you know, coordination between the Cardassian government and the Bajoran government would probably be aware of that. And would probably know that and be like, I'll make you a deal. <clears throat> you like to make deals, right, Win? I'll make you a deal. Anyways, so let's talk about Cubus really quick before we continue on with the episode. Because <sighs> we have to talk about collaboration. Now, this is the other thing this episode does that, in my opinion, is not great. It brings up the topic of collaboration, paints it as a black and white issue, shows one shading of gray, and then moves on. I wish they did more with this. And uh, not too much more. I don't want them to be ham-fisted, and I, want, I don't want them to lay down a decree from on high, but what I want for them to do is to really show more characters' reactions to this, show more of an impact of what this collaboration was and did. We see the bad side of collaboration. Kira lays that out very clearly. 
And the gentleman playing Cubus, I didn't write down his name, please forgive me, but the, the gentleman playing Cubus does a good job of showing just how horrified he is and how ashamed he is at being a collaborator, at being someone who willingly went along with things. It's a nice, nice, it's actually horrible, but in fiction, it is a nice slice of characterization when someone does something horrible, I've, I've talked about this before, actually, if you're paying attention, does something horrible, knows that it's horrible, and chooses to do it anyways, and hates themselves for it. Because it's the best option they got, or at least that's what they believe. And he he did a decent job of portraying that. And I do like his portrayal of that, and I do like his position in the story as that. I know this is going to sound weird, but I wish DS9 was a little tighter on continuity sometimes, because to me this feels like such a logical follow-through of crossover where we saw how different circumstances and different environment could lead to someone living a very different life. Specifically with Kira and everything I talked about last week, you know, I've already talked about it, so I'm not going to repeat myself. That right there is something that should have dovetailed into this. There should have been an acknowledgement of this, either uh, uh, vocally or in terms of just how she's reacting to him. Like, have her get enraged at him. Have her fury and rage, and, and Odo has to restrain her. He's like, what's wrong with this? And she stops herself and looks down at her hands and realizes this and takes a moment and pulls herself back and walks away. And perhaps in private, because we usually have to say these things out loud in Star Trek, have her admit, I saw a little bit too much of what I could have been in that man and I did not like what I saw. And just something like that. That would have been nice. Anyways, so they mentioned the Ilvian Proclamation. I believe this is the only time they actually mentioned that, which is funny because collaboration will come up in the future as well. The Ilvian Proclamation is another one of those things that's a great idea that they don't explore at all. I picture the yelling, the, the ranting, the, the screaming, the, the public voting, the religion, uh, the various religious, I almost said the religious cast. It's not Babylon 5, I swear. The religious crew, you know, all of the religious organization, the, the, the Bajorianisms, Zs, Bajoran priests, I don't know, the Vedics, you know, the Vedic Assembly. All of them just constantly getting involved in this debate of what to do with collaborators, especially known collaborators. Because, well, what do you do? Can't you just see that argument? That shouting fest, they they all they agree to be exiled from Bajor. That sounds so much like a compromise to me. Like some people probably wanted to have them executed on the spot, or or have all their stuff ripped away from them and, and given to the government, or given to the people, or or t- tear them out of the streets and and whip them in the streets or something. You know, and people could think of all sorts of horrible, terrible things to do to these collaborators. But then there are people who are like these people were only doing what they had to do to survive, and and they 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 were trying to help us, and they did it to save Bajor, and not, they didn't do it out of personal greed, and blah 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 blah. And so you could just see how the the like five different sides of this debate could all develop. I like the exile compromise, because it's basically the only compromise that would satisfy everyone by basically removing the problem from the equation. Go away. All right, we're done. Because <laughs> nothing else is going to satisfy all concerned parties, is it? So, I've decided I'm not going to talk about collaboration too much more. It is an unpleasant and dirty topic. I kind of actually already talked about it last week when it came to talking about crossover, so I don't really feel like repeating myself on that either. I do like, the, like I said, I do like how the episode does show how collaboration is not actually a black and white issue, because it shouldn't be. 
you can't tell me that there weren't people who were working with the Cardassians because it gave them perks. Because they were selfish or greedy or evil. You can't, or, or petty. You can't tell me there aren't people who were doing that. But you also can't tell me that there are people who weren't doing that because they were trying to save their families. Or take care of their friends. Or lighten the load on other Bajorans. We do know with reasonable fact, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I want to stress this is not an apology. I am not apologizing for the Cardassian Union. But we do know with reasonable fact that several of the Bajoran people's, uh, let's call it, uh, oppression meter was lowered a bit thanks to collaborators, thanks to people saying, I'm going to do this. In fact, one of those is demonstrably shown in this episode. 1,200 people to save countless others. They gave up the rebel cell so they wouldn't have to burn the entire area. Now, that is horrible. And let's make this clear. The crimes here, this is something I keep saying over and over in this show, the crimes are really on the, the, the shoulders of the Cardassian Union. However, you can at least see why for in the moment, with, with, with everything being kept into account and no advantage of hindsight... Do I choose to sacrifice these this 1,200, or do I choose to sacrifice all these people, is a decision one can make in favor of the former. Opaka literally gave up her own son and all of those people in collaboration with the Cardassians in order to spare the lives of others. And what I love most about this episode is that at no point in time is that portrayed as a, a question of whether it's right or wrong. That's almost removed from the table entirely. Instead, it is shown as what it is, a dilemma. Because a true dilemma has neither a right nor a wrong answer, only answers, and the permutations that result from them. Opaka lost her son and saw to the death of 1,199 other people as a consequence of that action, and saved many others from basically needless slaughter. Did that have any impact? Did it change anything? Was it correct? Well, those are things to be debated afterwards. And that is the one thing I will give this episode. Moving on a little bit here. <clears throat> oh yeah, actually I do have one more thing here, really quick here. Beryl takes the blame for Opaka. Now the episode portrays that as a personal choice, that he had so much loyalty to Opaka that he was willing to take the blame for that to spare her it. But I can't help but notice that there's another reason to make that choice. If the truth about Opaka doing this came to light, what would that do to the Bajoran people? Keep in mind, Opaka is an absolutely legendary fi figure amongst the Bajorans. Not just spiritually, culturally. She is the closest thing to a legitimate singular hero the Bajorans, as an aggregate, have. To hear that she was a collaborator... To hear that she sold out her own son? Do you know what that would do to the Bajoran people? That might quite literally lead to civil war. No joke. At the very least, it would lead to massive schisms between people, between families, between Vedics. We might literally see a second church be developed out of that as a consequence of that knowledge. Because we've already seen many, many times just how anti-Cardassian these people are. As I've pointed out before, simply the implication that you're doing business with the Cardassians is enough to basically stain your, your record, your, your public appearance or persona or whatever, forever. That's all it takes. A known collaborator? That's much worse. 
And keep in mind, with the information they had, they could prove this, so it wouldn't be a debate. It wouldn't just be flinging mud. Now, I mention that because I like to think that Burial was enough of a long-term thinker to realize that if the truth of that came out, that that would have been it. That he had to accept the devil he knew, and God, I don't think I've ever said that more literally, in exchange for avoiding the, let's call it the undiscovered country, that might be coming. Now, as an aside, just really quick, I do have to say that probably the one and only smart thing that, uh, uh, not a pocket, win, that Kai Win does in the whole episode is she accepts this bargain in order to fling mud at Burial. Why? I don't want to get too much into real-life controversial topics, but let's just say that here in real life it is a demonstrable fact that if you accuse someone of something, that will hurt and in some cases ruin their reputation in a way that will damage their ability to function either politically or economically or in their job or career or whatever. That is a proven fact. If that accusation is proven wrong, it usually doesn't change anything, because that's not how that works. In fact, one of the other unfortunate truths is that too many people seem to presume that being accused means you're guilty. I could just walk up right now to some person on the street and say, This person mugged me! How do you think people are going to react to that sudden uh, approach? Like, oh my god, right? Or I could accuse someone over the internet. That's so easy to do nowadays. And be like, he, he did this horrible thing to me. Or she did this horrible thing to me. It's an accusation. That's it. That's all it is. It's an accusation. So, taking it... Let's remove real life from this for a second. Think about the Bajorans and everything I've told you about the Cardassians. And how they view Cardassian interaction. The threat, the accusation of collaboration with Cardassians is all it would take to destroy Burial's career. The one and only thing she screwed up on was she didn't go public with this immediately. She should have. She should have just gone straight public with this rather than trying to go through Kira to get whatever truth she wanted out of this. But again, Wynn's not a good politician. She's an obvious politician, so that doesn't surprise me. Anyways, so then there's Quark. I don't have much to say about it. It's a good scene. It is a good scene. The blocking is great, as ever. Credit to Cliff Bowl on this one. Because uh, Armin Shimmerman is just kind of like clutching his, his latinum and kind of shrinking away. And both Odo and Kira are like being as intimidating as possible. And basically forming a body wall. Like closing in around him. It's, it's really good stuff. I just wanted to comment on that really quick. Um, so, <laughs> I also have a small note here. This is the second time uh, in, in just a couple episodes where O'Brien's been asked to retrieve deleted data and said, well, I can do that, but it'll take a while. I don't know if that's deliberate, but I do like the continuity there. Which brings me to my next point. Odo has a wonderful line, which I paraphrased here because I didn't get it all down in, in time. Even the best of you are capable of terrible things in extreme circumstances. I like that quote. It's obviously indicative of Opaka. That's the point it's being le leveled here at. But I also love the way it's presented, given what we just had in Crossover. Again, I hate to repeat myself, but this would have been a perfect time for Kira to just kind of 
lose her fire and kind of give that knowing look because she just recently saw what she would be like in extreme circumstances and how terrible she would be. And that would be an excellent way to just kind of showcase some of character's char- char- Kira's character growth. See that five times fast. And honestly, I think that would have been an interesting new direction for Kira. I hate to say this because I love Deep Space Nine, but I wish crossover mattered more for Kira's character arc. I really do. Because near as I can tell, it has no impact on her whatsoever. And it should. I have not else to add. I do hope that you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you guys next time.